So good to be with you, church. As we get back into the book of Hebrews, it's been about two months since we've been in Hebrews. And so by way of reminder, what is the book of Hebrews all about? It's a letter written to Jewish Christians living in the first century. They're living in hardship and persecution against Christians is intensifying. And so these Hebrew Christians who are professing and holding fast to Jesus now are facing the danger and the temptation of letting go of Jesus, of giving up their hope in Jesus and returning back to Judaism and living their old way of life. Can you relate with this at all? Has life ever been so hard that you're just tempted to walk away from Jesus? Has temptations ever been so unending that you just want to give up on following Jesus and just go back to living the old way of life? And so when we find ourselves in a place like that, what do we need most? When we find ourselves in a place like that, what do we need most? We need Jesus. When we're most tempted to give up Jesus, what we need most is Jesus. And so that's what the author of Hebrews does throughout his chapters, pointing to Jesus over and over and over again, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is more superior than anything that this world has to offer. To Christians on the brink, just on the very edge of giving up Jesus, Do you know what the author of Hebrews does? He paints one of the most magnificent portraits of Jesus we can find in all of Scripture. That even though Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature, that he humbled himself. Even though he upholds all things by the word of his power, he humbled himself and took upon our every weakness and has endured all of our temptations. He tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears so that he's able to sit with us in the midst of our pain and tell us that he knows. He knows whatever you're going through. Whatever pain, whatever trial, whatever tears that he knows, he tells us that even though the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away our sins, that Jesus' blood could on the cross. That Jesus, having laid down his life for us, rose again from the dead and conquered sin and death forever and now serves us as our perfect high priest with the power of an indestructible life, he says and is right now at the right hand of God and is praying for you. And so no matter what you're going through, no matter the sin, no matter the pain, he tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That's what the author of Hebrews has been doing in the first 10 chapters. And as we get into Hebrews chapter 11, famously known as the faith chapter, The question that Hebrews 11 is asking is, if Jesus is really all of that for us, how then should a people whom he has loved live? And it answers by telling us that we are a people 
who live by faith. We are people who live by faith. That's how we live. And so far, we've looked at the faith of Abel and the faith of Enoch. And that catches us up to today. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, where we're going to look at the faith of Noah. Let's read it again together. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The faith of Noah here is placed in due order of chronology after Abel and after Enoch, right? And perhaps, though, there's another reason for the order that the author intended in placing Enoch and Noah back to back. You see, by faith, Enoch, what happened to him? He was taken up, right? So that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him, Hebrews 11:5 said. Charles Spurgeon said that Noah then is kind of a contrast. It's kind of a contrast to Enoch, that Enoch was taken away from the evil to come, that he did not see the flood, nor hear the wailing of those who were swept away by the flood of God's judgment, that his was a delightful deliverance from the evil and the hardships of this world, that it was not his to fight the battle of righteousness to the bitter end, but that God took him and delivered him out of it. But what about Noah? Noah is the picture of God's people who aren't delivered out. They're not delivered out of the hardships and the evils of this world, but the one who is called to endure and persevere and to live by faith in the midst of them. Church, like God did for Enoch, by faith our God is able and he does at times deliver us out, doesn't he? So that we don't have to face the suffering and the temptations anymore. Enoch never even knew, right? He never even knew all the things that God was delivering him out of. I wonder what all the things that God has been delivering us out of without us even knowing it. But through Noah, what is God showing us? He's showing us that even when he doesn't, even when he doesn't, for reasons wiser than we can know, that there is a way to, by faith, persevere and endure in the midst of whatever evil and whatever suffering. So that's what we're looking at today. What is the kind of faith specifically that is able to persevere and endure? Aren't we desperately in need of that kind of faith? We see in Hebrews eleven seven that Noah's faith is a faith that believes the things yet unseen. His is a faith that works with holy fear, and his is a faith that loses the world in order to gain a better one. It's a faith that believes, it's a faith that works, it's a faith that loses in order to gain. First, it's a faith that believes the things yet unseen. Look at the text again. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. So God spoke and he warned Noah, and though it was concerning events that Noah could not yet see, 
Noah believed God. What was the warning that God gave and why did he give it? Sin had entered into the world through Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. It had become an epidemic. It could not be quarantined just in the heart of Adam and Eve, but it spread. It spread to their children and their children's children. Sin not only spread out wide, but sin spread in deep into the heart of all mankind to the point that God says in Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so God told Noah, you remember the story, that he was going to send the flood. And so for Noah to build an ark, and he gave him instructions, it was to be the size of one and a half football fields, four stories tall. And he was told to gather birds and animals and creeping things, male and female, according to its kind. And Genesis 6.22 tells us this, that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah did all that God commanded him, it says. And think about the weight of that word, all. Because up until this point in history, there had never been a catastrophe like a flood that destroyed all flesh. Did you know that some biblical scholars believe that it had never even rained up until this point? That there was an atmosphere of water that surrounded the earth in such a way that it hydrated the land so that it didn't need rain. An atmosphere that perhaps even explains why people lived to such an old age at this time. Noah had never seen a flood, perhaps never even felt a drop of rain, but Noah believed God anyways. There was nobody in town that was like, an ark, oh yeah, I built eight of those. Come by in the morning and I'll help you. Concerning building something Noah had never seen in his life built, Noah believed God and built it anyways. And certainly up until this point in history, no one had undertaken to gather male and female from every bird, animal, and creeping thing. Concerning an endeavor Noah had never seen anyone even think to endeavor, Noah believed God and endeavored anyways. And so this is the kind of faith that enables us to persevere and endure in the midst of whatever suffering and whatever evil in this world. It's believing God, not just when he speaks of things that we've seen before and have done before and has happened before, but even when, especially when he speaks of things never seen before. No eye has seen, Isaiah tells us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the mind of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In fact, as Christians, we are a people who have a very strange relationship with the things unseen. A.W. Tozier once said, a Christian feels supreme love for one, one whom he has never seen talks familiarly every day 
to someone he cannot see. The Christian sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows with certainty things which surpasses knowledge. And the Apostle Peter said it like this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Isn't it true? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's faith. And so persevering faith believes, it believes the things yet unseen. But church, notice, the author of Hebrews says things yet unseen, right? And that's a critical distinction. Persevering faith doesn't just say, I believe in Jesus even though I've never seen him. Persevering faith says, I believe in Jesus even though I've never seen him, but I know I will. I've just yet to see him. You will see him one day, church, and on that day he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. On that day, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. The faith that says, I know I will see him, the faith that says, I know that day is coming, is the faith that can endure and persevere through anything that this world has to throw at us. The next thing we see from Noah's faith is that persevering faith is a faith that gets to work. It's a faith that gets to work. It's a faith that works with holy fear. Look at the text again. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. Church, how can you know if the faith that you have is a persevering faith, a faith that's going to make it, a faith that's going to endure to the end and not a counterfeit one as the Bible warns? If we were to ask Noah he would say, well, it's real simple. He would ask, do you have a hammer and a saw in your hands? Because how do we know that Noah really believed God? We know because he picked up a hammer and a saw and got to work. If he never got to work, it wouldn't have mattered if he went to church every Sunday and sang worship songs. The only way that we know that he really believed is because He picked up a hammer and a saw and got to work. A persevering faith and therefore a saving faith that's genuine and not counterfeit is a working faith. As James tells us, James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Another way to say it is that, yes, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It will produce good works because it's alive, because it's genuine. When God spoke to Noah, Noah didn't just sit around and do nothing, thinking, an ark. Sounds like a lot of work. I'll just name it and claim it. Ark. Give me an ark, God. Right? 
He didn't just sit around. He got to work. He proved his faith genuine by getting to work. But the deeper question is, how was Noah able to keep working? Because church, for most of us, isn't this the deeper issue? It's not that we're sitting around and doing nothing and just naming and claiming people's salvations. No, we make real attempts at sharing the gospel. But the question is, how do we keep sharing the gospel when we've been rejected over and over again? It's not that we're sitting around and doing nothing to reconcile and restore relationships. We forgive when we're wrong, then we initiate even when fearing we'll be rejected. But the question is, how do we keep forgiving when we've been sinned against yet again? And how do we keep being soft-hearted when we get rejected yet again? And it's not that we immediately give in to temptation. It's not that we automatically question God and get bitter when suffering comes our way. The question is, how do we keep fighting when the temptations don't go away? How do we keep trusting when there seems to be no reprieve to the suffering? You see, what makes Noah's faith so incredible is not that Noah started working, but that he kept working for a long time. For 120 years, it took Noah to build the ark and gather the animals, the Bible tells us. Charles Spurgeon said, if a man lives to be 80 and 60 years of that lifespan is spent in the exercise of faith, it is only by almighty grace that he holds out. Noah lived two of our lives in this way. How did he keep going? How did he keep enduring? Yes, he did it by faith, but more specifically, he did it by what his faith produced in him. And what is that? Look at the text again. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, in reverent fear constructed, got to work. By faith, in reverent fear, it says, Noah's faithful Fear is what moved him. His holy and reverent fear of God is what energized him, gave him energy to keep going, to keep working and enduring, no matter how impossible it all seemed. And church, we already know this from experience, don't we? How many times, with how many different things, whether it's our jobs or school or parenting or whatever else, do we just keep going, keep enduring, even though it's incredibly difficult, and though we're just on the very edge of giving up, all because we fear. We fear more what would happen if we quit than how hard something is. Like parenting. Parenting is hard. It was like 16 degrees outside this week. Why do I have to tell my kids they have to wear jackets? I had to explain to a kid, no, you having hair on your legs is not the same as you wearing pants. <laughs> Kids are less than intelligent. Parenting is really hard. And so, why do we keep going? Even though we lose patience and we may utterly fail at it, we say sorry to our kids, we repent to Jesus, we get up the next day and try again. Why? How? Yes, out of love, but also out of holy fear. Holy fear of what will happen to our kids if we quit. If we don't parent them the way that God calls us to. And as a quick side note here, 
Noah parented. Noah parented. How do we know? Because when literally no one else would listen to him, when the whole world would not listen to him, that he heard from God, who listened to him? His kids did. To live by faith is not some mystical thing. It's a very practical thing. Noah, by faith, parented. I read Pastor Tony Evans point out in this text that Noah must have been the real deal because his kids and his daughters-in-law didn't go with the crowd, but they went with dad. So evidently, Noah had laid a foundation of parenting that when dad said we heard from God, we heard from God. And it didn't matter what everybody else was thinking. God used Noah to save his family. Eight people entered into the ark. So dads, keep going. And dads with unbelieving kids, take courage, because can you save your kids? No. But can God use your faith to the point to the one that, he, that does, that is able? Yes. So holy fear is what moves us and gives us energy to persevere. But notice what made Noah fear this holy fear. Look at the text. By faith Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen and reverent fear constructed an ark. It was God's warning that made him fear. God's warning that produced this reverent holy fear. Thomas Manton, an old English Puritan, preaching on this text said, while the people of the world did not tremble with fear until the waters reached their rooftops, Noah trembled in fear when God did but speak. What word of warning has God spoken to us? That there's, that there's a day coming for us, right? An event yet unseen for us and an hour that no one knows when our King Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. The day when to the faithful, to his right, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter. Enter into the joy of your masters, but to the unbelieving to his left, he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you to be cast this time, not into a flood, but into the lake of fire prepared for Satan and his demons forever. The whole world is going to fear on that day. But church, we are those who fear him now on this day because he has but spoken of that day. Let me read you a long quote from Charles Spurgeon, because I can't do it justice otherwise. Angela found this quote, because she's incredible. Um, he said this, you cannot have faith in the promise unless you are prepared to have faith in the threatening also. You cannot have faith in the promise unless you are prepared to have faith in the threatening also. Sincere faith in God must treat all God's words alike. For the faith which accepts one word of God and rejects another is evidently not faith in God, but faith in our own judgment, faith in our own taste. If you look at one part of the Bible and say, I like this, ooh, I like this, I believe this, but look at another part of the Bible and say, ooh, I don't like this, I don't believe this, that's not faith in God, that's faith in your own taste, right? What you like, what you don't like. Noah had, in this case, received a promise. But as the dark 
background to it. He had listened to the terrible threatening that God would destroy all living things with the flood. His faith believed both the warning and the promise. If he had not believed the threat, he would not have prepared an ark and so would not have received the promise. Men do not prepare an ark to escape from a flood unless they believe that there will be a flood. I charge you who profess to be the Lord's not to be unbelieving with regard to the terrible threatenings of God to the ungodly. Believe the threat even though it should chill your blood. Believe, though nature shrinks from the overwhelming doom. For if you do not believe, the act of disbelieving God about one point will drive you to disbelieve Him about other parts of revealed truth. With solemn awe, believe the bitter word of judgment that the word of mercy may be sweet to you. We should just say amen and go home, right? But one more. What else do we see about Noah's faith? A faith that believes the things yet unseen. A faith that works with holy fear. And let's look at the text one more time. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's faith, it says, was a faith that condemned the world. By this Noah condemned the world, it says. By what? What did it just say that Noah did? He constructed an ark. Noah condemned the world by spending 120 years of his life in constructing an ark. And so think about it like this. You're traveling down life's path, and at a certain point it splits. And there's two different gates with two different paths. One gate is very wide and the road through it is paved and it's all downhill and the sun is shining and the birds are singing and the people traveling down it are laughing. But the other gate is very narrow and the trail is rocky and slippery and it's treacherously uphill, and the people traveling up it are straining and struggling, scraped up, cut up, and bleeding. Which one will you choose? And what if in that moment you hear Jesus say, the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Simply by believing Jesus and trekking uphill, what are you doing? You're condemning everyone else that start their leisurely stroll downhill to their destruction, refusing to believe Jesus. So church, we're not called to condemn the world by bickering at the world and despising the world and scorning the world. We don't read anywhere that Noah attacked the world and reviled against the people of his day. Noah condemned the world simply by believing God and choosing to spend the next 120 years of his life building an ark while he himself was being mocked and scorned by the world. But think about the weight of what it means to condemn the world. Noah condemning the world by believing God wasn't a one-time decision. It wasn't that Moses 
Noah prayed the prayer to ask Jesus into his heart, and so he's good. It was an everyday decision. By faith, for 120 years, while sweating and bleeding and cutting down tree after tree, right? Again, living by faith is not some mystical thing. It's a practical thing. He had to cut down trees by faith. He had to do the everyday mundane with faith. Noah had to every day condemn the world by every day dying to his world. He had to die to his dreams and aspirations that he had in this world. He had to die to his hopes of finding happiness in this world, enjoying the pleasures and the leisure of this world, garnering respect and the applause from his peers in this world. And the dying wasn't fast. It was slow. It was a slow martyrdom. The life that God was calling Noah to, the work, the magnitude of it, think about it, what it would cost him physically, financially, in his reputation. God was calling him to a life that made it impossible, impossible to somehow obey God and yet cling to this world. Noah didn't have some side hustle going where he was hedging just in case God's word wasn't true. No, it's not an ark. It's just an indoor zoo. No, he was all in. Noah had to preach to himself every day saying, the sun is shining today, but it won't last. The birds are singing today, but it won't last. The people are laughing today, but it won't last. He kept reminding himself, I've yet to see it, but I know I will see it. There's coming a day, so keep going, Noah. Every day he was telling himself, preaching to himself. And think about this. What if after Noah endured all that he endured and the ark was finally finished, but the rains never came? How would Noah feel about his life? Would he say, oh well, at least there's no judgment? No, the only way that Noah could look at his life and feel and know that it was worth it is that if the rain does come, if God's word is true, if God's word isn't true, if there is no coming judgment, the way that we're living shouldn't make any sense. If it ends up that there is no resurrection, if it ends up that there is no day where we have to give an account for the life that we have lived. Because of the way that we spent our lives utterly for him, we should all feel that we are men most to be pitied. That's the kind of life that Noah lived by faith. And that's the kind of life that God's calling us to live by faith. I'm afraid that most of us are living lives where if the judgment doesn't come, if God's word isn't proven true, we might think to ourselves, oh, well, I still lived a good life, really enjoyed this world. That's not the life that God is calling us to. The life that God is calling us to makes it impossible it makes it impossible to still hold on and cling to this world and find our hope in this world, find pleasures and gain in this world, and yet still gain him. So the kingdom of God is like a man who found treasure, found treasure, and went and sold all that he had, and in joy over it, went and bought that field. That's the kingdom of God. Why do we hedge? Because we doubt. We doubt whether what God has said is really true. And I wonder if Noah ever doubted. 
I wonder if Noah doubted at year five. Five years is a long time. I wonder if he doubted at year 30. I wonder if he doubted at year 119, thinking, what in the world am I doing? Is the flood really going to happen? And I wonder if you're doubting, thinking, am I really just crazy and out of my mind for believing in the Bible? Am I just absolutely foolish for being willing to lose this world and all that it promises because I'm choosing to follow Jesus? We may be at year five. We may be at year 30. We may be at year 119 in waiting for Jesus. We don't know. But the author of Hebrews is saying, take courage. Take courage. Have hope. A day of vindication came for Noah, and it will come for you too. There came a day for Noah and the world when the rains did fall. And the floods did come. And the winds did blow. And so we can be sure that there's coming a day for us and the world when the heavens will part and the trumpets will blow. And we see King Jesus high and lifted up, returning for his people and to trample upon his enemies. And if that day doesn't come, it makes the lives that we have lived utterly a loss. But if that day does come, then the gain of that day is swallow up all of our losses of this day and the laughter of that day will wipe away all the tears of these days that day came for Noah and the world and what did Noah and his family do they entered the ark they entered the ark and in it they received their promised salvation you see Noah did have to lose he did have to lose this world but he didn't just lose he gained He gained. Noah, by faith, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, it says. Noah, by losing his life in this world, gained a far surpassing one, and we will too. And in conclusion, how does Noah's faith, Noah's life, ultimately display the gospel to us? How does it ultimately point us to Jesus? By showing us that Jesus is the true ark of our salvation. By showing us that Jesus is the true ark of our salvation. Because how was Noah and his family ultimately saved? How are they ultimately saved? Not because they built the ark, but because they entered into it. Building the ark is important. Obedience is important, but unless you're willing to lay your working down and enter into the ark and trust in the ark and the ark alone for your salvation, it's all for naught. What does it mean to say that Jesus is our ark? It means that you will only be saved. It means that you will only be saved from the coming judgment and the wrath of God if you get into him. If you get into him. Underneath the roof of his authority. Surrounded by the walls of his care. Standing on the floorboards of his foundation. Because our God is the God of holiness and righteousness and justice, his wrath against our sin must be poured out. Unimaginable floodwaters of God's wrath was poured out and it beat against the ark. 
It beat against the ark, but Noah and his family was completely safe, completely dry, while everything and everyone else perished. How? Because they were in the ark, guarded by the ark, kept by the ark. Isn't that what happened for us at the cross? All the floodwaters of God's judgment and wrath against our sins was poured out but it beat against him. Beat against him. So that it may now be said of us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in the ark? Are you in Jesus? Church, if we have a God who did all of that for us, a God who did not even spare his son for us, and a son who was willing to take upon himself all the wrath that we deserve, then we have a God that we can believe. We have a God that we can trust. We have a God who we can give of our 30 years, 60 years, 120 years. Church, though we do not now see him, we will see him. That day is coming. Let's live these days in light of that day. Let's pray together. If you're here this morning and listening and you don't know that you've ever entered, if you can't say that Jesus is the ark of my salvation and I have entered into him under his headship, surrounded by his care, standing on the assurance of his promises. I want you to know that you can do that today. As lovingly as I can and as soberly as I can, I want to tell you that there's a day coming. And it will either be the day of your greatest woe or it will be the day of your greatest delight. It all depends. It all depends on whether you look to the ark that is Jesus and say to yourself, I'm not safe. I won't be saved. I'm a sinner. God is a God of justice and righteousness. His wrath will be poured out. And unless I'm in that ark, I won't be saved. And enter into him. There will be no salvation. But if you do, if you do, even today, on that day you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter, enter into the joy of your master. I invite you to do that today. And if you're here and you have entered into the ark of your salvation, that is Jesus, will you pray and will you ask God, God, is there... Anything about my faith that is lacking? Say, God, I want you to look at my faith like Jesus looked at 
some faith, and it's, the Bible says he marveled at it. He marveled at their faith. Say, God, I want my faith to be a faith that you look at and you marvel at. And will you ask him, God, am I looking to the things that are seen in this world, hoping in the things that are seen in this world, finding pleasure and delight in the things that are seen in this world, rather than the things that are yet unseen. Will you ask him, God, do I just say that I believe you, but there's no working out my salvation? God, will you show me where to get to work? God, am I still clinging? Am I still trying to hedge? God, am I still trying to find my great delight in this world and hope in this world with my 60, 80, 120 years rather than surrendering it all and saying I've been bought. I don't belong to myself. All of my life is yours. If that's you, will you pray and will you ask God to open the eyes of your heart that by faith you may be able to say all of it, God. I'm not holding anything back. All of my life is yours. So Father, that's our prayer. As your children, we just come to you and we say, God, we want our faith to be a faith that you delight and marvel over that makes you so happy. Will you do that in us and through us? By the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.